a week late, but I just wanted to take a minute and just tell you how thankful I am to be here and to have you guys as my congregation. This is an amazing church, and I just wanted to say that it is a real privilege to be a pastor here and to serve you and to be able to serve God in this community with you. Uh, You're really a fantastic group. So I just wanted to tell you how much I appreciate all of you and love you before I talk about how sinful and dysfunctional your families are, uh, which is kind of the theme of this morning, okay? So a little bit of sugar helps the medicine go down, you know? Um, We're starting our series on Joseph, and you'll notice many of you in your bulletin, you got this sort of fancy two-page folded uh, homework sheet. This is not the notes for this sermon. There's some hints in this sermon about the homework, but this is homework for you, especially for everyone, but especially if you're in a small group. Your small groups will be using this as a guideline for what you're going to be talking about through the week, and your leaders have some additional information to this. And so if you want to take notes, you take notes separately, and then you take this home with you, and this is extra work for you to do uh, to get... uh, And it's not a lot. There's maybe half an hour, 45 minutes each week that you can just do that will prepare you for your small group sessions. And uh, so that will be in the bulletin every week. Uh, for you. And if you don't have one, uh, there's extras at the back uh, in the lobby. So you can do that, just so you know how it works. But this morning we're starting on this series on Joseph. It's the Joseph of the coat of many colors, not Joseph of Arimathea, not Joseph the husband of Mary, but Joseph the coat of many colors, that Joseph. I wasn't clear which Joseph it was. So uh, if you read the wrong part of the Bible getting ready for today, I apologize for that. Um, And the context as we begin this that we want to look at is um, focusing on this idea of families of origin. Who is Joseph and who's his father and who's his grandfather and who are his brothers and and what is it about our family and our family of origin uh, that shapes us and shapes in a way what culture might call our destiny. We don't generally use that word destiny, but it shapes who we are, it shapes the direction of our life based on the family that we come out of. And so you can't really talk about Joseph without talking about the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you can't talk about the story of Joseph without at the same time, as we're talking about this family story, there's a, when you're reading this, you understand there's something going on in a family. There's something going on horizontally among the people of this family, and their story is playing out. But what I want you to keep in mind is at the same time, God has a story, God has a narrative and I'll try and use that word, narrative, because it's a good way to remind us that God is telling a story, God is accomplishing a purpose that's above what is happening in the families. And so when you talk about the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, of course you're talking about the covenant family of God. This is the family that God said he is going to bless all the world through. And so there's things that we have to understand before we get to Joseph that God is already doing in this family. God has things he needs to get done. In Genesis 15... Uh, Verses 5 and 6, you don't have to turn there. I'm just bringing you up to date on where this family sort of gets started. He says to Abraham, he says, He brought him outside and said, Look towards heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And Abraham believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then this is when God has the four different kinds of animals, and he divides them, and he makes this covenant uh, with Abraham. And then he goes on, and he says, The Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners, or stayers, or travelers, in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants, or slaves there, 
and they will be afflicted for 400 years, but that I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. Okay, so God is, God's going to tell a story through Abraham's life, and he's given him the first 430 years of it. Okay, right? You're going to go, you are going to have a ton of kids, so that has to happen. Like, so many kids, you can't even number them. And in addition to having all these kids, you're going to live in a foreign land for 400 years, and you're going to be slaves there, and then I'm going to bring you out of there with great possessions. So that's a narrative, that's a story that God is telling while we're looking at the human stories that are taking place in the Bible. And then you talk about Jacob, right? He's the son of Isaac and Rebekah. He's the twin of Esau. And when she was pregnant, the twins, um, Isaac and Esau, sorry, what am I talking about here? I'm talking about the wrong person. Let me get this straight. <laughs> Isaac was not the twin of Esau, okay? Jacob was the twin of Esau. He's the son of Isaac and Rebekah. He's the twin of Esau. Uh, and while she was pregnant with him, uh, the twins seemed to be fighting. Jacob and Esau seemed to be fighting in her womb uh, even before they were born. And she didn't understand. And so she asked God, what is going on with my kids, right? What, what are, what's going on with my family here that they seem to be in conflict even in my womb? And God tells her that her sons would become the heads of two rival nations, Israel and Edom. And the firstborn twin was named Esau, which means hairy, and the other one was named Jacob or Jacob, which is supplanter or literally heel catcher, because when they were born, Jacob came out holding the heel of his hairy brother. Right? Like, you can't make this stuff up, right? I mean, this is, this is history here. Right? And notice this, that when God told Rebecca this, he said, the older will serve the younger. Genesis 25, 21 to 28. The older will serve the younger. So God has something going on here in this family. Well, Jacob was born fighting and he had to fight tricky because Esau was a hunter and he was a woodsman. He was a man of the fields. He would have felt right at home in Halliburton. Okay? So he knew how to bow hunt. He knew how to skin a deer. He knew how to, you know, dress a moose or whatever that means. And he did all of that stuff. And he loved it. And so Jacob wasn't going to overpower anybody. He stayed home with mom in the tents and he survived by trickery. He was a deceiver and deceitful and he tricks Esau out of his inheritance for a bowl of porridge. Okay, so understand this about Esau. He's not the brightest bulb in the pack, right? He comes in hungry from hunting. He's willing to give up his birthright for porridge. Jacob is only too ready to oblige him. But then after tricking Esau, he still has to trick Isaac. Because the blessing comes from the father to the son. And so he has to trick Isaac, who lucky for him is blind and can't see very well. And so he puts on a goatskin coat, you know the story. And Isaac is like, come, let me touch you. And he's all hairy like his brother. And he says, you sound like Jacob, but you smell and you feel like Esau. So he's confused, but he gives him the blessing. And so Jacob tricks Isaac out of the blessing that was supposed to go to Esau. Then he goes and gets married and he has his father-in-law Laban, who's deceitful in his own right, tricks him out of marrying, marries Leah first, and uh, then he has to stick around for another seven years to, to marry Rachel. But he tricks Laban out of his flocks, you know, the spotted goats and the striped goats through goat breeding, and, and he wrestles with God even for his final blessing. He has to fight, this is the point, he has to fight for everything in his life. Jacob is a fighter, and he's a tricky guy. He's, he, he deceives people to get what he needs in life. And you even get to Genesis 32, as I say, he, he wrestles with God for his final blessing and even has his name changed at that time. He said, 
as he's wrestling with this angel of the Lord, he said, let me go. The angel says, let me go for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. There is the story of Joseph's father. He's striven his whole life with man and with God, and yet he has prevailed. And then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask me my name? And there he blessed him. And the greater always blesses the lesser. And so Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. And then verse 31 there is very interesting. We could just spend time on that. But he says, the sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. So Joseph, or sorry, Jacob, the father of Joseph, is this, is this guy, comes out of this heritage of, of, of trickery and deceit and always wrestling and always fighting. And even after all that God had done, for Jacob and the part that he is to play in the promises of God. He's now called Israel. This is where the nation of Israel gets its name. His name is Israel and his sons will be the tribes of Israel. But he's still Jacob. And in fact, in Genesis 37, where we introduce this story of Joseph, we see that both of his names are still used because he's both, he is Israel. He is the promise of God for the nation and for the world, but he is still Jacob. He's still insecure. He's still selfish. He's still prone to error. There's still a lot of dysfunction on his part as a father. I mean, his sons are not very nice and he spoiled Joseph and he created the mess that we're going to get into shortly. And he, he, his characterness and his selfishness and his deceitfulness translate down into his family. There's this generational sin and dysfunction that Jacob passes on even to his sons. And we'll see echoes of Jacob in both Joseph, in the sense of entitlement and expectation of ruling and pride, or at least self-centeredness, and also we'll see echoes of Jacob in his brothers in deceitfulness and trickery. And so as we consider the life of Joseph, we have to see it in light of family dysfunction and understand that God is at work in his narrative, even while we are playing out our narrative Maybe not exactly the way God intended us to, but God is accomplishing his purpose in our lives and our families anyway. There's a greater scope of what God is accomplishing, even using the dysfunction of families. And so in Genesis 37, we get to the, the heart of our story, or the beginning of our story, on Joseph and this incredible story, one of the greatest stories I think ever told. I mean, you have everything here, right? I mean, you've got uh, visions, you've got uh, plotting of murder, you've got uh, potential infidelity, you've got imprisonment, you've got rise from you know, the ashes to greatness. You've got redemption of the family. Like, it's just an incredible story that we're going to be going through for the next seven weeks. And it begins here with this 17-year-old boy, Jacob, in Genesis 37. It says, He lived in the land of his father's sojourning, in the land of Canaan. And these are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. And he was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpha, his father's wives. Gets complicated. He's got lots of wives. Four, actually. Jacob does, but it's, it, I'm telling you, this is like modern family. And Joseph brought a bad report to them of their father. Notice that. And now Israel, see, he uses the name Israel as well, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that, their father loved him more than all his brothers. They hated him, and they could not speak peacefully to him. 
And so what we see immediately in the early life of Joseph is pretty severe family dysfunction. And as you go through Genesis 37, it is unavoidable to notice how dysfunctional this family is and how much sin and generational sin has infiltrated it and and caused us problems in it. So Jacob, the father, is oblivious to what is going on and he's actually aggravating it. And we see hints of it in the way that it's handed down. Esau was favored by Isaac. um, And his favoritism influence Jacob. It says in Genesis 25, talking about Isaac, says, now Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So there was favoritism in Jacob's parents, and that favoritism now translates down to Joseph and his brothers. He's playing favorites with his own sons. So grandfather to father to son, the dysfunction is handed down. And then Joseph, it seems, started out working in the fields with his brothers. 17 years old, he's out working in the field with his brothers, but then he would snitch on them, right? He gave a bad report of his brothers back to his father, and nobody likes a snitch. Snitches get stitches, as they say. And, and, and Joseph actually is going to get some stitches, right? Uh, so he's going to learn that. Maybe that's where this came from. I don't know. Snitches get stitches. But we see here that, that Jacob buys this whole golden child routine and loves Joseph the most. He loves the fact that Joseph is keeping an eye on his brothers out in the field, Right? And he gives him a fancy coat. It's a sign of status. It may even be a sign of authority as well because as we will soon see, Joseph is no longer in the fields with his brothers. He's at home at the tents the same way Jacob was and he just goes and checks up on his brothers now. And so he's almost like a manager of his brothers or an overseer. And this happens in our families as well, right? We are not impervious to this kind of thing or the harm that it can cause. I've seen grudges in families where sisters or brothers feel that one or the other is the favorite. And imagine stepping into the parents and saying, do you see the damage that you're doing when you play favorites, when you play one against the other, when you take one side over another's side? Would they even see that they're doing it? Does Jacob here even know that he is perpetuating the tendency of his father and his grandfather? Does he even know that that's happening? Would they even see that they're doing it? Or would they rationalize it away? I don't even know that Jacob realizes he's doing it. He's just doing what comes naturally. And it's a dysfunction that he has had handed down to him from Isaac. And it's just how he thinks families work. And that's important for us to recognize. We all operate our families the way we were taught to run in our families. It's just the way we think families work. And I see this far too often. Not necessarily with playing favorites, but any sort of pattern behavior that comes down generationally in families. Husbands treating or mistreating their wives the way they saw their father treat their mother. Wives and mothers manipulating their family the way they saw their mother do it. Is this not why in the most extreme cases you have abused daughters marrying abusive husbands? And why codependent men marry a woman who is most like their mother? And this codependency and this dysfunction, even this abuse. And when we talk about the story of Joseph, let's not pull any punches. This is abuse, it gets down to. They want to kill him. They end up selling him into slavery. This is murder and human trafficking in this story. right? It's a nice Sunday school story to talk about the code of many colors, but it's a story of murder and human trafficking. This is a dysfunctional family. Let's not avoid this. And I'm hoping, for most of us, that we're not talking about murder and human trafficking in our family squabbles, okay? I've been 
angry at my brothers. I've been angry with my sister. I've been frustrated for sometimes weeks on end, but I've never wanted to kill them or even throw them in a pit. Push them downstairs maybe, but not throw them in a pit. Right? But this is the problem that we have here is murder and hatefulness. And none of us are totally innocent of it. To some degree, we've all inherited a broken and flawed relationship and habits that we project onto our children. And let me tell you, this is me. I almost weep sometimes when I think of some of the thoughtless and careless ways that I parented Isaac without intending to pass on to him bad habits of my own. And I mean, you have to trust me in this. Isaac is going to make his therapist rich one day, okay? He has a lifetime of therapy ahead of him because of my parenting. But, but we have to be aware of it, right? We all do it. There's generational sin and it influences our family. And so think of your own families in this way and your current family. We're so individualistic that quite often we think that nothing that happens in my family or nothing that happens to me is really going to sink or affect me deeply in my soul. We think we're not affected by it. We think we won't pass it on, but it's not true. The sinful twists in our family, the sinful things that we do, not necessarily murder and human trafficking, but playing favorites and arguing over this or arguing over that or holding this grudge or holding that grudge or treating people in a certain way, it affects us deeply in our soul and we end up passing it on. And here we have a man who's a follower of God this is Jacob. He would, in our terms, we would call him a Christian in our, in our time, right? He's a follower of God. He's been blessed by God. He's given his life to God. He's, 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 he's surrendered to God. He's wrestled with God and been blessed by God. And yet he still is stumbling into the same error of his father and also his mother. And by favoring Joseph, he's done a disfavor to all of his children. And here's a man who, it seems, as much as he loves God, has made an idol of his son, and is trying to live vicariously through Joseph. And he's putting his hope and his joy in Joseph. And in doing so, he's twisting his family into knots. Now, there is good news. God rescues Jacob and God rescues the brothers and rescues this whole family. It's going to take many chapters before it happens. And it's not without pain. But the whole big story here is that God is redeeming. The good news is, is that God is going to rescue them all. So now let's look at the brothers and Joseph. Here, Jacob kind of stokes the flames of hatred in Joseph's brothers with the coat and with the light duty routine. He doesn't have to be in the fields anymore. And they hated him and they could not speak peacefully about him, it says, which literally in the Hebrew is lo shalom or lo debar shalom or salam. In other words, they cannot speak with peace. There is no shalom. There is no salam with these brothers. And then Jacob, he tells his two dreams. And I won't go into all of that. The, the, the sheaves of the brothers, are, they're all out in the field making sheaves or bales of wheat. And they all bend in this dream as he stood tall in the middle. And then he has another dream. And the sun and the moon and the 11 stars are all bowing to Joseph. right? And so they're downstairs in the morning just having their cornflakes and having their cereal. They know they've got to get out into the field early. You know, and Joseph comes down the stairs, or I guess, you know, through the tent flap, however it works. And, uh, you know, he says, oh, by the way, I'm having these dreams. All of you guys are bowing to me. You know, even mom and dad and all the stars, and you're the stars, you're all bowing to me. And they hate him. He's not helping his situation here at all. And it says his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept these things in mind. 
And remember, God had told Rebekah that the older brother would serve the younger in the case of Jacob and Esau. Jacob would actually be the child of promise and become the father of Israel. And now in this generation, Jacob's son Joseph, who is the youngest, not the youngest, but the younger son, is given dreams where the older serve and bow to the younger again. And so Jacob is listening to this and he's saying, I've heard this story before. It's me all over again. And he's living his life through Joseph. But it causes even more hatred in Joseph's brothers. And Israel is giving this some thought. So now we move on in Genesis 37, 12 to 14. It says, Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Aren't your brothers out pasturing the flock? Come, I'll send you to them. And so he said to him, Go now, see that it is well. Now that's interesting because the phrase there in the Hebrew is actually, Go see if there is shalom with your brothers. Like how unaware is Jacob and Joseph of the situation that's going on in their family? There is no shalom with these brothers. And Jacob says to Joseph, you go and see if there is peace, if there is shalom with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. And Joseph's like, sure, I'll go. It's, it's amazing how they're not aware of what's going on in the family. And we already know there's no peace with his brothers. There's not going to be any peace. And they saw him coming from afar. And before he came near them, they conspired against to have him killed or to kill him. And they said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. And then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what becomes of his dreams. So they see him from afar, probably because of the coat. Coat of many colors. the only coat like it. Who else wears a coat like that except their little brother? And they conspire to kill him. And they say, And we will see what becomes of his dream. And that statement there is part of the lesson for us because we know how the story goes. The brothers in the middle of the story, if you put yourselves in their shoes, they don't know how it ends, but we know how it ends. And so it's ironic, it's foreshadowing what they say there when they say, We're going to take him and throw him in a pit and we'll see what happens with this dreamer. And they don't realize that even while they are conspiring against Joseph, they are playing right into the hands of God. Because something is going to become of that dreamer and he needs to get thrown into a pit and sold into slavery for those dreams to come true. And they don't realize that they're actually accomplishing the dreams of Joseph. And Joseph doesn't realize it either, which we'll talk about next week when he's in the pit. He's got his own struggles in the pit. Neither his brothers nor Joseph have any idea of the suffering and the tragedy that are going to be a part of his dream coming to reality. And that's important for us to take note of because God is at work in our suffering and even in our tragedy, even in tragic circumstances. And so we have an idea of God's plan for our life and our dreams. And I think Joseph had this idea of God's plan for his life, right? He is the child of the youngest son who the older served. I mean, he knows the story of his dad. He knows the story of his granddad, Isaac. He knows that the younger was the child of promise. He sees that he's the younger child. He has these dreams. He's having a good life. He's got the coat of many colors. He's got the promise of God that his elder brothers are going to serve him. Joseph has no idea what is in store for him for those, those dreams to come across or to come true. Joseph's had only good dreams. Joseph as a ruler, his family bowing. These are his dreams. This is what he expects of his life. He may think he's already living it out in some form now with the favor that his father shows him. I mean, we often think of Joseph as the good boy, and in a way, Joseph is a good boy. But really, only because he's largely been sheltered. He's not built any real character. And so we think about that in our own lives. We think God has these great plans for us, and we think that from now on, it's only uphill. And I'm sure that's what Joseph was thinking. 
being the favored son and having these dreams and God show him his future like this, he's thinking, yes, this is a golden life for me. My dreams are all going to come true and God's going to favor me. And he has no idea the suffering that he has to go through to accomplish God's dream in his life. But we know and we see that God is at work even in that suffering. And so now the younger son, Reuben at this point, he plays a part in this. He intervenes and says, let's not kill him. Let's just put him in the pit alive because Reuben wanted to rescue Joseph later. And so they put him in a pit and they decide later they might as well sell him as a slave. And so Joseph gets sold as a slave for 20 shekels of silver. Now, just as a note here in Exodus 21:32, it says the replacement cost of a slave is 30 shekels. So if you have a slave and somebody accidentally... Something happens and your slave ends up being killed or injured. You are owed 30 shekels for your slave. That's the same price that was paid for Jesus, 30 shekels of silver. And these brothers sold Joseph for less than the price of a slave, for 20 shekels. And if you're like me and you have to do the math, I'll just do it for you really quickly. 20 shekels is about 8 ounces. That's about $370 at today's silver prices. Okay, so $370, that's probably a lot of money at their time. But I figured it out another way. One shekel is about three denarius, uh, which is a day's wage. So 60 days of a common laborer's wage would be about seven to $8,000. Okay, so there you go. Joseph gets sold for about the equivalent of seven to $8,000. His brothers pocket the money. They say, this is a good deal. We sold him at a bargain, but we're glad to be rid of him. And then in Genesis 37, he says, 31 to 34, it says, Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood, and they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, This is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without a doubt torn to pieces. And then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. Okay, remember, we're talking about generational dysfunction and generational sin. You see how Jacob, the trickster, who tricked Isaac, who tricked Esau, who tricked Laban, right? Now he gets tricked. His sons have inherited this dysfunction of deceit. This is a family that operates outside of the truth. They're never honest with each other. Jacob is not honest about himself with his sons. His sons are not honest with him. The heritage of Jacob's deceitfulness and trickery shows itself up here. And you can hear the guile in the voice of the brothers as they ask this question. You know, we found this, Dad. Is this Joseph's robe, Dad? Do you recognize it? I mean, how cruel is that? They know exactly whose robe it is, and they know that, Joseph, that Jacob can identify it. They don't have any doubt. They know on purpose that he can identify it and the trauma that it's going to cause. But they are deceitful and cruel regardless out of their hatred for Joseph. So what's happening here? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, that the history of God's people, the nation of Israel, literally the nation that arises from Israel, from Jacob, was written down for us. He says, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So the Apostle Paul says, we're supposed to learn from this. We're supposed to learn from what has been written down about the nation of Israel. So there are three things I think that we can learn here. First of all, the first lesson is that our life narrative is not the largest or most important one. From the very beginning of our introduction to Joseph and knowing who his family is, we see that God is orchestrating a far greater narrative and God is orchestrating a far greater purpose. God has set out to redeem a people and in redeeming a people, redeem the world. 
and we will get into this more as the series goes on, but we have to first see that it's true that God really is at work in something bigger. Not just in Joseph's life, not just in Isaac's life, not just in Abraham's life, not just in Jacob's life, but in all of our lives. God is working on something bigger using the mundane circumstances of our life. Even family squabbles, even family tragedy, even abuse and murder and human trafficking, God will use for his purposes because he has a narrative that supersedes our narrative. So everything that we do, we have to see through the lens of what God could be accomplishing in this. As Joseph is in the pit, as Joseph is in jail, as Joseph is in these situations, he has to begin to see, and he does begin to see, That God is accomplishing something far greater than his suffering, and it's for the good of the nations and the people around him. But this is tragedy that's taking place. These are brothers contemplating murder and settling for human trafficking. And it's evil. And these are God's chosen people. And what kept striking me as I read this over and over and over again, okay, is that these are the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel that we're talking about before they had wives and like a thousand kids, right? This is Judah and Simeon and Asher and Dan and Gad and Levi and the whole lot of them. This, these, these brothers that are doing this are the heads of the tribes of Israel. They're God's chosen people. And so we look at the dysfunction in our family and we think, how can God use us? How can God use me? I'm too sinful. I'm too broken. I'm too weak. Look at these guys. They want to murder their brother. And God's going to make them the head of Israel, the heads of the 12 tribes. God is working all things for his glory, even and often in suffering and tragedy. And here's what I took away from it. Because most often, you think, why would God use this family? Why would God use suffering and tragedy to accomplish his purposes? And it dawned on me. Because when he's working with us, suffering and tragedy is all we give him to work with. That's all he's got to work with is suffering and tragedy because that's all we bring them. We bring our suffering, we bring our brokenness, we bring our tragedy, and God says, I'll use that, I'll redeem it. That's true in every family. He will use it for his good. So God will not waste Joseph's suffering and he will not leave this family where they are. God's story isn't finished with them. He's going to redeem them. So take heart that God is telling his story, even in your life, even in the suffering and dysfunction and mistakes and sin that is already made, it will be redeemed. And I hope none of you think your families are normal. I mean, it might not be murder and human trafficking, but we're all broken and we're all bent and we're all dysfunctional. All of our families struggle in degree with this. And if God can take murder and abuse and slavery and redeem it, he's able to look in an unflinching way into whatever it is that you have happening in your family and redeem it too. God does not flinch away from what he sees in our life. Secondly, generational sin needs to be broken. As God said to Eve, I will put enmity, literally hatred, between you and the woman, between Satan and mankind, and between your offspring and hers, he says in Genesis 3.15. The very beginning of this is a, is a war. And this generational sin, there's going to be conflict between the enemy and us. And this is the story of our broken and sinful world, fallen and in rebellion against God. There are dark and sinister powers that seek to destroy the people of God, and they are in opposition to Him from the very beginning, and they are therefore in opposition to us and our offspring. They're in opposition to our families. They are not exempt from this spiritual battle that's going on. 
God made us in families with offspring and for families. And because we are in family and we make families, it's not surprising that families are under attack by our enemy. And so generational sin that has infected families is a real thing, and that sin must be broken and redeemed. And there's a warning woven all through these opening paragraphs of Joseph's story for us as Christian parents, that even though we are recipients of the grace of God, sinful tendencies can still overtake us. Jacob was a man of God, he was the child of promise, and sinful tendencies still twisted up his family. The brokenness of sin goes deeper than we realize, and we need God's grace to break the chains that link us to our past and that try to bind us to our children and bind our children. And so we just need to appreciate how deeply and subtly we've been warped by sin and how it comes out in ways towards those that we love most. But then we also see in the larger narrative that God is redeeming and God is restoring and God is setting free. And so when I'm up here saying this is the reality of your families, don't hear me saying that you're somehow lost. I'm saying there's hope in this story that God is redeeming the brokenness that's there. Generational sin is real. Generational sin needs to be identified. And generational sin and dysfunction needs to be broken. And then finally, how does it get broken is point see the third thing we can learn here is that we are born into a new family and a lot of your homework has to do with this last point i'm not going to elaborate on it we're born into a new family if we turn and we look in the new testament we see that god has deliberately framed the hope that we have in him in familial terms so god uses the context of the family to describe the new hope that we have and why all of this can be broken. In 1 John 5, 1, it says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever, loves whoever who has been born of Him. Do you hear that? We're born of Christ Jesus, and we love those who are born of Him. We're born into a new family. Or Galatians 4, 4 4-7 says it this way, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. You see, God is deliberately using the terminology and the picture of family to describe to us what we have. And so while it may be true that we are at war and that we have dysfunction and that we have sin and we have things passed down from grandfather to father to son and from grandmother to mother to daughter, we have this generational sin in us. What we take away from this is the reality that we're born into a new family, that, that we're no longer slaves to that that we are set free from that, that there is freedom to be found in Christ Jesus. He's adopted us from our old fleshly family into a new spiritual family. And so this week, as you go away from this message and you do the homework, I actually started to get pretty intense this week. Your first week is going to be pretty intense because you're going to look at your grandparents and your parents and yourself and your own marriage and your own kids. And you're going to look at what it is that you may have inherited from them in terms of dysfunction and twist and deceitfulness or whatever it is. The, the things that you learned from your grandparents and your parents that you are passing on and in identifying them, recognize that those patterns of generational sin, they touch us deeply in our soul. We do not escape them. They do affect us and they will affect our children if we don't interrupt them. And that generational sin has to be broken. And so in your handout, there's exercises for you to do and there's scripture for you to read and there's questions that you'll be discussing in your group that'll talk about how do we parent? 
And how do we live as Christians in the light of the families that we're born into? You have a new spiritual family. So this week you'll, you'll want to be doing this. And above all, you'll want to be remembering that even though Joseph is born into this family, even though Joseph has this grandparent and this great-grandparent and this father and these brothers, and even though there is this dysfunction and there is this tragedy and there is this sin in his family, God's narrative supersedes Joseph's narrative. And God's narrative is superseding our narrative. You can look at your family history. You can look at at what's going on right in your family today. And you can say, how is God using this? Well, we're like Joseph and the brothers. We don't know the end of our story yet. They didn't know how God was using it. But God was using it for their good. And that's what you need to remember this week. Whatever's going on in your family, God can use that. He is a redeemer. He's taking brokenness and wickedness and hurt and he's using it for good, ultimately, the redemption of your family and yourself. Let's pray.